Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. My name drop on Sunday mornings when we talk about false teachers and things like that, but I have to talk about a guy that maybe you've heard of. His name's Peter Popoff. Peter Popoff is a late-night televangelist that's very famous for selling this miracle water that you can receive from Russia. Now, you're not supposed to drink the miracle water. You're supposed to put it by your bed. And if you put the miracle water by your bed, you will be healed of all diseases. You will have a financial breakthrough. You will get out of debt. And so if you watch late-night television, you might see Peter Popoff selling this miracle water. But let me give you the whole story. Maybe you don't know the whole story behind Peter Popoff. Back in the mid-80s, he got exposed, and here's what happened. He would have these big miracle crusades, and his wife was back in the control room with a radio transmitter, and he had an earpiece. And she would feed him information about people in the audience. And he would act like he was knowing all of their sicknesses and things like that. And so it was exposed on Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show, back in 1986. As a matter of fact, some professional musician, magicians and illusionists who understood this type of stuff went actually to one of his crusades. And they, they had sound equipment there and they actually caught him. And in 1986, they thought it was going to ruin his ministry. He was exposed as a fraud. But that didn't stop him because here he is today. To this day, you can see Peter Popov selling this miracle water on television. 1992, Steve Martin starred in a movie called Leap of Faith. I don't know if anybody remembers that movie. That was based upon Peter Popov's deceptions. And so there is no shortage of charlatans and false teachers in our world today. There are no shortage of spiritual leaders who know better, but they pull the wool over the eyes of unsuspecting believers. False teachers, people that pull wool over the eyes, those that try to manipulate their audiences. Now, why do I bring up false teachers? Why do I bring up manipulators, illusionists, people who have false motives. Well, this carries us to where we were last week. Last week, we kind of were in half, we went halfway through the account where Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee. And if you remember, these Pharisees were acting all righteous, and, and Jesus basically doesn't wash his hands as an object lesson to show these Pharisees that on the outside, they're looking all righteous, they're looking all moral, but inside, they are spiritually dead, they're full of hypocrisy. And so Jesus pronounces three woes on the Pharisees. Now, you remember last week, the word woe, it's not Keanu Reeves, woe, I'm trying to see if you're awake this morning, woe means how horrible it is. The horror, the disaster. Jesus is basically saying, how disastrous for you, how terrible for you for these things to happen to you on the day of judgment. And so last week, Jesus exposed the horror of a hypocritical heart in these Pharisees with three woes. Now, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. 
he's going to now offend another group called the lawyers. And Jesus is going to pronounce three woes upon the lawyers. So in this passage of scriptures, we take it as a whole. Last week we looked at the woes to the Pharisees. Today we're looking at the woes to the lawyers. There's six woes in this section. So let's pick up where we left off last week in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So Jesus insults the lawyers. The lawyer stands up and says, Jesus, you're insulting us. Why are you insulting us? Now, here's an important thing to realize about Jesus. In our culture today, the greatest sin in our culture today is this, being mean to people. That's the greatest sin in our culture today. You don't want to be mean to people. Jesus is not necessarily nice. He's not necessarily kind in insulting these lawyers. So let me just ask you a question. Is it nice or is it kind to allow someone to continue in sin and not confront that sin? Is it loving to just let them continue in sin? We do not love others by indifference or silence, but by confronting people that are in sin. Now, we need wisdom in this, but I think far too often we as Christians would rather be indifferent, not deal with it, or be silent. We don't want to address it. Jesus goes right to the heart and rebukes these lawyers. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ. We're to speak the truth, but do it in love. Not being indifferent to sin, not being silent about sin, but confronting it in a way that's loving. And so Jesus does this. He's not necessarily nice to these lawyers. He actually insults them. If you remember last week, he called them fools. So Jesus is addressing their sin, and he's doing it in a way that's pretty strong. It's a rebuke. He calls them fools. He says, woe to you. And now he turns his guns to the lawyers. Now, who are the lawyers? 
Now, when we think of lawyers, we think of a person that tries cases in court, a person that's like an offense attorney, somebody that, that, that does things in a court of law. That's not what the lawyers were back in this day. I want you to think about a different image. The lawyers in Jesus' day were more like the seminary professors. These were the smart dudes, the learned men, who understood the Old Testament. They were the most learned in the Old Testament. Out of all the people in Israel, the lawyers were the most educated in their Bibles. They had the most knowledge of the Old Testament. They were the most schooled. And so, last week's message was directed towards our hearts. Remember, I I said there's the horror of the hypocrisy of the heart. And last week, we really had to ask some questions about our own hearts, the hypocrisy. And we're going to continue to do that this morning, but the the message is a little bit different this morning. We are going to look at hypocrisy, but not so much at our own hearts, but it's a different question. Here's the question I want to ask for today. How do you know you are sitting under a spiritual leader who's manipulative? How do you know that you're not being led astray by false teaching? How do you sniff out a false teacher? How do you know you're not being spiritually abused by a pastor or a teacher or an elder? How do you recognize if someone in a spiritual position of authority, a leader, a preacher, a teacher, an elder, is not leading you astray? Now, the Bible has a lot to say about false teachers. The Bible has a lot to say about false teachers, about false teaching. Jesus would say in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, false teachers do not walk into a church with a name tag that says, Hello, my name is Wolf. They don't do that. They hide their intentions. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing. They look innocent. They look unassuming, but they're ready to devour. Acts chapter 20, 28 through 30. This scares me to death. Pay careful attention to yourself and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my... Paul's talking to the elders here of Ephesus. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Shockingly, these these twisted things, these false teachers would come from the elders themselves, Paul says. Even from from the elders it could happen. They They would speak twisted things. Romans 16, 17 through 18. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught and avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. False teachers use smooth talk and flattery and try to win a hearing in order to manipulate people. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit 
and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False teachers not only twist the scriptures, but they're puffed up with pride and arrogance, and they cause divisions. They cause factions in the life of the church. In the book of Titus, Paul gives instructions to the elders as to what the elders are supposed to do in the life of the church. First, or in Titus 9, 1 through 11, or Titus 1, 9 through 11, he, talking about the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul tells the elders, sometimes you need to silence a false teacher. You need to rebuke a false teacher. You need to correct a false teacher and silence that false teacher. And then in 2 Peter chapter 2, 1-3, through 3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They're going to exploit you. They're going to twist the truth. So the Bible is very clear that there are false teachers. They are dangerous. They are deceptive. They are manipulative. They will lead you astray. And so Jesus addresses these false teachers, these lawyers who are teaching falsehoods. And he's rebuking them. He's actually insulting them, rebuking them, correcting them for their exploitation, for their manipulation, for their false teaching. So, last week Jesus pronounced three woes on the hypocrites, I mean on the Pharisees for their hypocritical heart. Today we're going to look at these three woes that Jesus pronounces on the lawyers. And again, the lawyers were the, the key teachers in Israel, the, the men who knew their stuff. And so let's ask the question again. How do you know that you're not being led astray by false teaching? How do you sniff out a false teacher? How do you have discernment to make sure that what you hear from this pulpit as well as what you hear in your growth groups, as well as what you watch on YouTube, you listen to on podcasts, what you download, you are inundated all week with messages from people besides me. Now, hopefully, I'm not going to lead you astray. And I've prayed this before, okay? This is a prayer that I prayed to the Lord, and so you just need to know this. This is a prayer that the Lord and I, I've prayed this multiple times, okay? So you need to know this. I've asked the Lord, I said, Lord Jesus, if I ever begin to teach false, if I ever begin to preach false teaching, just kill me. I've said that to the Lord. If I ever go off the path and start leading this church astray, just kill me because I don't want to lead people astray. I'd rather be dead than to lead people astray. So Jesus addresses false teachers. And he, he pronounces three woes. So here's the first woe. Woe number one. It's a false teacher. You know it's a false teacher when, here's number one, 
spiritual leaders burden you with man-made rules that are impossible to follow. Spiritual leaders burden you, weigh you down with man-made rules, not scriptural rules, man-made rules that are absolutely impossible to follow. Now, let's see what Jesus says here. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. Here's the first woe. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You're loading down the people with too many man-made rules that are just impossible to follow. Now, think about the fourth commandment for a moment, the Sabbath. The Lord's very clear in the fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. That's the fourth commandment. By the time the Pharisees and the lawyers came around, they had added 39 man-made rules on top of the Sabbath to make sure that you wouldn't break it. So on Sabbath, you couldn't plow a field, you couldn't hunt a deer, you couldn't butcher an animal, you couldn't carry a child on Sabbath, so if your child was sick, you couldn't carry them to church. You couldn't help an animal that was giving birth. Some of you farmers and ranchers that have animals that give birth, if, if it just happened on, on Saturday back then, you, had, you couldn't help. You couldn't tie loose knots. You couldn't sew more than one stitch. And you couldn't repair a fallen roof. And there were probably dozens and dozens more. So what were these lawyers doing? They didn't practice what they preached. There was this major inconsistency between their message and their life. They didn't lift one little finger to either do the man-made law they'd made up themselves or to help the people to follow them. Jesus says, you've loaded them down. You've burdened them. James 3.1 says this about teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. These are the teachers in Israel. These are the, the major teachers, the leaders, the spiritual leaders. And Jesus says, I'm rebuking you. You're false teachers. You're burdening people with man-made rules that you don't even follow, and you've made it impossible for anybody to follow, and you're just, you're just above everybody else. Now, I'm not trying to be political when I say this, but one of the frustrating issues that we've seen repeatedly during the COVID pandemic is hypocrisy of politicians at the highest level. They will make mass mandates, but yet they will go break that to go to a restaurant or go do this or go do that, where they want you as the peon to follow the rules, but they're above the rules. They'll go do whatever they want to do. And so we look at that and we think, that's just rank hypocrisy. It's more than just rank hypocrisy. It's actually hierarchy. They think that they're better than you and they don't have to abide by those rules. And so that's exactly what these lawyers are doing. We're better than the other people. We've made these man-made rules and they're almost impossible to follow and we know they're impossible to follow. We want you to follow them, but we're not going to lift a finger to do it ourselves. We're going to be hypocritical. Spiritual leaders should never hold people to a standard beyond the plain teaching of Scripture. Let me say that again. Spiritual leaders should never hold people to a standard beyond the plain teaching of Scripture. So in other words, I 
can't bind your conscience on things that are not clearly taught in Scripture. Now, there are some things that are clearly taught in Scripture that I can tell you, thus saith the Lord. But let me give you another COVID example. Okay, I got a lot of COVID examples this morning because it seems like it's all we're talking about. So when it comes to vaccines or masks, I'm agnostic on this. I, don't, I could care less. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you want to get a vaccine, get a vaccine. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. If you don't want to, if you don't want to get a vaccine, don't get a vaccine. The Bible is not, there, I cannot find a verse that says thou shalt get a vaccine. And I've not found a verse that says thou shalt wear a mask. This is a matter of conscience. And I as a pastor cannot burden your conscience to say you have to do it one way or the other. For some of you, it may be your decision to do it one way. For others, it may be the decision to do it the other way. And I would have to just be hands off and say, beyond that, I, I can't burden you down with a man-made rule because it goes beyond the limits of Scripture. This is what these lawyers were doing. It reminds me of what the Judaizers were doing in the book of Acts when they were adding circumcision onto salvation as a requirement for the Gentiles. They said, it's great that the Gentiles are getting saved, but in order to truly be saved, they have to be circumcised. Now, kids, if you're still in here and you want to know what circumcision is, talk to your parents after the service. It'll be a great conversation over the dinner table. Acts 15.10. This is the, the Judaizers. <laughs> Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? By putting circumcision on top of salvation. You're putting a, you're putting a burden. So these lawyers were putting this burden on people, but they were finding their own loopholes to not have to fulfill it. They were making man-made rules that everybody else had to follow, but they weren't lifting a finger to do it themselves. In other words, it was this do as I say, not as I do mentality and actually it was creating a major burden on these people notice what it says there verse 46 woe to you lawyers you load people with burdens hard to bear you load people with burdens hard to bear you've burdened people you've loaded people down now what did pastor andrew read earlier during our time of confession Let's read it again. What does Jesus say about being loaded down with burdens? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They were putting an undue ungodly legalistic burden on the people that was impossible to follow and they weren't willing to follow it itself and jesus says listen those of you that are burdened down with all these man-made rules come to me and find rest because i'm the only one that can save you it's salvation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone so that's the first woe to these lawyers you're, you're loading people down with rules that are man-made that you're not willing to follow yourself and you're making it almost impossible for everybody else to follow. That's number one. The number two is a little bit more difficult to understand and we're going to have to, to, to go a little bit deeper into this. So here's the second woe. You know it's a false teacher when, here's number two, spiritual leaders persecute the true messengers of God. When they persecute the true messengers of God. Now let's unpack this for a moment. Look at verse 47. 
Woe to you, this is the second woe, woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel and the, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. They were building monuments to the prophets of old. They were building monuments to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah and Ezekiel, and Amos, and all the Old Testament prophets. They're building monuments to them. We're really spiritual. We're, we're, we're building monuments to those Old Testament prophets. But what Jesus is saying is that you're just like the people of that generation that killed those prophets, that persecuted those prophets. You want to look righteous by building a monument to their name, but you're not listening to what those prophets actually said in the Old Testament because those Old Testament prophets were pointing to the ultimate prophet who is to come, Jesus Christ, and he's standing right before you, lawyers and Pharisees. Jesus in the flesh is the ultimate prophet that those Old, Testaments, those Old Testament prophets were pointing to. And you're not listening to them, and you're not listening to him. As a matter of fact, you're just like your fathers who persecuted the prophets and jesus gives a history lesson says from before the foundation from from the foundation of the world the first martyr think about this this is amazing genesis chapter 4 you have the first martyr in the bible abel killed by his brother cain you remember in genesis chapter 4 it came time for the sacrifices to be given to the lord and abel brings the right sacrifice he brings the first of his fatted animal he brings an animal sacrifice to the Lord, gives, gives the Lord his first. And the Lord looks upon favor with Abel's sacrifice because it's given in the right way and it's the right manner. It's, it's the right sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, with the right heart. Cain, on the other hand, does not bring an animal sacrifice. He brings like a fruit, one fruit. He brings a portion, the leftovers, of his grain, of his crops. And he has a really bad attitude about it. And God says, listen, Cain, I'm not accepting your sacrifice. Because you brought it in the wrong manner, and you brought the wrong type of sacrifice. And so Cain gets upset, and what does Cain do? Cain goes out and kills his brother Abel. So Abel is the first martyr in the Bible to be killed by his brother, of all people. Okay, in your Hebrew Bible, not in our English Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is the last book. And it records how the last prophet, Zechariah, was killed out in the open in the temple of all places. Think about how bad it would have to be in Israel for a, temp, for, for a prophet of God to be killed, not outside the, the city in secret, but in the temple square itself. That's how bad Israel had gotten. Second Chronicles 24, 20 through 21. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he's forsaken you. So Zechariah is standing in front of everybody. He's standing in the temple. He's standing in God's house, and he's telling the people, You, you need to repent. You've, you've forsaken the Lord. You've broken the commandments. And look at verse 21. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. 
Jesus says from Abel, the very beginning of the Old Testament, to the very last of the Old Testament, Zechariah, and everybody in between, you and your fathers have persecuted and killed God's true messengers. Elijah had to run from his life from Queen Jezebel, was almost hunted down and left for dead. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, flogged, stone, in prison. Rumor, not rumor has it, but... Um, yeah, rumor has it, this happened to Jeremiah. No, actually, um, it's not biblical in the Bible, but the traditional view was that Jeremiah was stoned to death in Egypt. You guys want to know how Isaiah died? It's not also recorded in your Bible, but Jewish history tells us that Isaiah had to flee for his life. Isaiah hid in a tree. They saw the tree in half, and thus they cut Isaiah in half. He was sawn in two. So prophets of old were mistreated. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you guys think you're so spiritual, you're building a monument to these guys. But you did not listen to them, and you're not listening to me. You persecuted them, you're going to persecute me. And so false teachers are very quick to speak against those who preach the true gospel. If somebody who truly is a man of God comes along and preaches, thus saith the Lord, and gives a message from the Lord, oftentimes it's your false teachers that will speak out against the truth. They don't want people to hear the truth, so they're going to speak out. They're going to persecute. Think about what I've been warning you about over the past year and a half or so, this whole movement called progressive Christianity. This progressive Christianity movement that we're seeing cropping up all over the place. Those of us who hold to the biblical truth, we're being maligned, we're being told we're bigots, we're being told we're intolerant, we're being pushed to the sidelines, we're being told by other supposed evangelical Christians that we're mean, that we're intolerant, that we need to tone down the rhetoric. And here's the reason why. Frankly, the progressive Christians are embarrassed by the truth of God's word. And so when we preach the truth of God's word, sometimes from quote-unquote Christian circles, people will come and say, Tone it down. Be quiet. Don't, don't say that. We don't want to hear that. So Jesus here, on this second woe, says that false teachers will oftentimes not listen to true teachers. And as a matter of fact, want to persecute true teachers. So much so that the prophets of old were killed by the Israelites because they didn't want to hear the message of God. Now here's the third woe. You know it's a false teacher when, here's the third one, spiritual leaders distort the gospel of salvation. They distort the gospel of salvation. Now look at the third woe here. This is in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers. Here's the third one. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. Now, these lawyers were supposed to accurately and rightly teach God's truth. They were supposed to take the Old Testament and say, Look, Israelites, everything about the Old Testament points to Jesus and salvation in your Messiah. Jesus is the key to knowledge. You have to ask the question here what's the key to knowledge? Well, it's Jesus, He's the key. 
What did Jesus say about himself? Jesus said he's the door or he's the gate. John 10, 7, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door for the sheep. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the only way of salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They were twisting the message of the gospel. They had the key of knowledge in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus, and they were not pointing people to Jesus. As a matter of fact, they were preventing people of their generation from receiving their Messiah. They were twisting the scriptures. They were twisting the gospel. They were adding things to the message of salvation so that it was not merely the simple message of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They were distorting the way of faith. So three woes pronounced on the lawyers. Last week, three woes pronounced upon the Pharisees. A total of six woes. Now, how did they respond? Did the Pharisees and the lawyers repent? Did they they repent? No, look at verses 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. To lie in wait, almost like an animal lying in wait to attack. No, these men were instrumental in the arrest and betrayal and trial of Jesus that eventually sent him to Pilate to be crucified. These men did not repent. As you do Bible study, you come across some interesting things. There's another place in your Bible where you see six woes, like you see here in Luke. Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah pronounces six woes upon the nation of Israel. Go back and read Isaiah 5. They include everything from coveting, woe to you who covet. Second woe was woe to you for getting drunk and carousing, woe to you for lying and and bearing false witness, woe to you for being prideful, woe to you for taking bribes, woe to you for calling things good that are evil uh, and evil good. In other words, the Lord's anger was kindled against the Israelites because of their sin and treachery, and so the Lord pronounces these six woes, and basically at the end of chapter 5, he says, because of your wickedness, I'm going to send King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians to overtake you, and you're going to be in 70 years captivity because of these woes that are coming upon you. Horror to you, Israelites, because of your sin. And so there are six woes in Isaiah chapter 5. But you have to ask yourself a question. I always thought the Bible talked about seven being the perfect number, not six. Seven is the perfect number. Do you realize there's a seventh woe? In Isaiah, it comes in Isaiah chapter 6. There's the six woes to Israel, but then the seventh woe is pronounced not on Israel. It's pronounced by the prophet Isaiah. And you know this very familiarly. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 7. After six woes, listen to what Isaiah the prophet experiences. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting above a throne, 
high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. There's the seventh woe. Woe is me. For I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. It had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. When Isaiah the prophet is confronted with the absolute holiness of the living God. And these flying creatures crying out, holy, 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 he is on the floor like a dead man. And the only thing he can say is, woe is me. How dreadful it is for me. What a horror it is for me to be in the presence of the living God. I am toast. I am done. I am lost. But God came with the tongs of the altar and forgave his sin and atoned for his sin. Now let's think about Luke chapter 11. In Isaiah, you got six woes followed by a woe is me. In Luke chapter 11, you have six woes. Where's the seventh? Where's the Pharisees and lawyers being like Isaiah saying, woe is me? Why aren't the Pharisees and the lawyers who've been rebuked say, woe is me? I have sinned. I have been a false teacher. I have had a hypocritical heart. I have rebelled against the Lord. I have twisted scripture. I have led people astray. I confess, Jesus, you're my Messiah. I place my trust in you. Woe is me, like Isaiah cried out. You see, when Jesus pronounces a woe upon you, the only appropriate response for you is to say, woe is me. Woe is me. You cry out, I own my sin. I don't want to cover my sin. I own my sin. I, I've rebelled. I have a hypocritical heart. I am spiritually lost. I deserve to die. I, I repent in dust and ashes. Woe is me. Now, with these religious leaders, Jesus has been very pointed. He's been very clear. He's, he's, he's exposed them. He's called them to the carpet. He's exposed these false teachers for who they are. And we can be very quick to say, you go, Jesus. Expose those false hypocrites, those Pharisees. We hate the Pharisees. We don't like the lawyers. Go, Jesus, go. Insult them all day long. Give them those woes, Jesus. Give them woe upon woe upon woe. Go, Jesus. They deserve the rebuke. And yet, in our quest to see Jesus rebuke others, are we willing to receive the, bu the rebukes from our Lord? Are we willing to hear the hard words that Jesus has for us? Has Jesus been pointed with us? Has Jesus insulted us? Has Jesus rebuked us? I wonder what you will do when Jesus calls you to the carpet. 
Will you walk away like these Pharisees and lawyers, or will you be like Isaiah and fall on your face and say, woe is me? See, here's the good news this morning. The great news. The good news is, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he took your woe eternally. The, the woe is the curse of God upon your life, the horror of God's judgment, the horror of punishment that we rightly deserve. And so when Jesus was dying on that cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking your woe. It's almost as if Jesus could have said, woe is me for I'm taking the sin that I don't personally have, but I'm taking the sin of all my people on me. And it's a horror to experience the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Woe is me, Jesus is saying, on the cross. The full measure of God's justice came upon Jesus. And our sins were atoned for, just like Isaiah's was. Our sins were cleansed. Our sins were taken away. And so we have to ask the question, are we thankful that Jesus took the full justice of God, that Jesus took the woes that we deserve, that Jesus freed you, that Jesus forgave you, that you have peace with God? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you in all I do. I honor The only appropriate response when you see that Jesus took your woe is to say, woe is me. And then to say, thank you, Jesus, for your amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Would we all be like Isaiah and not like the Pharisees and the lawyers? When confronted with the message of God before you this morning, would we all fall on our face like Isaiah and say, woe is me. And when we say that, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive atonement that only Jesus himself accomplished. And that is amazing love. How can it be? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's go before our king. And let's just spend some time in prayer. Whatever you need to do this morning, however you need to do business with your Lord, would you take some time this morning in prayer? There's a great, a great paradox in this passage of Scripture, especially in Isaiah, in that when we are confronted with your holiness, when we're confronted with your glory, Jesus, when you rebuke us and reveal sin in our lives, the only appropriate response is to get on our face and say, woe is me. I own it. I confess it. 
And then Jesus, just like the, the sins of Isaiah were atoned for, Jesus, you ultimately atoned for our sins on the cross, taking the ultimate woe of God's justice, paying the penalty. That is amazing love, Jesus, because we deserve to be the ones to take the curse. We are the ones that deserve to eternally be in hell with the woe and disaster of our own sin. But praise be to God that you sent Jesus to die in our place. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that's never trusted Christ for salvation, would today be the day where they own up to their sin, they confess that sin, they admit that sin, and they cry out to Jesus alone as the only one that can save them. They cry out to him as Lord and Master to receive that forgiveness, to receive eternal life. Lord, help us to be humble. Help root out the hypocrisy in our hearts. Lord, give us discernment to know when we're being led astray by false teachers. Help us never to add requirements onto the gospel that are man-made legalistic burdens. Help us to rest in Jesus alone. Come to, come to you we who are weary and heavy laden, and we'll receive rest. Lord, help us to rest in you this morning. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. We want to leave this place encouraged because we've heard a message of hope, the gospel, that our sins can be forgiven. We don't have to walk out of this place with woes upon our life. We can walk out of this place forgiven, freed, because Christ, you've set us free. Let us walk out in that victory. Let us walk out in the victory that only Jesus gives in his cross and resurrection. Victory to Jesus, all to you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.